Hi, I'm Peter Harrington, and you're listening to Policy and Pandemics, a podcast from OPM giving you a unique look into the COVID-19 crisis around the world. Welcome back to Policy and Pandemics. I'm Peter Harrington. In this episode, we conclude our extended interview with Professor Matt Andrews from Harvard. You can hear part one of this discussion, which focused on crisis leadership in the previous episode. In this final part, we look ahead to the future and how COVID might transform countries and development itself. Matt, there's definitely a sense at the moment that we're coming to the end of Act 1 of this crisis. And I'm interested in what the big agenda items are that governments will face in Act 2. Um, You recently wrote a piece about growth after COVID and in particular what you called game-changing growth. Can you tell us about that and what you think the really big policy challenges are that countries will need to grapple with in this next chapter? Some of the agenda items in the next chapters are going to be similar for many many countries, right? Is how, how do we get people back to work? How do we, maybe in the short run, we're not even thinking about growth, we're just thinking about recovery, right? How do we just get our economies back, just get our firms started, just getting our service industries going again? How do we do that? How do we do that when some of those industries are not going to be coming back in the short run? And, you know, the, the, the kinds of industries I think that have a real difficulty in many places are any manufacturing sector where you have a production line where people are sitting close to each other or where people are living in dormitories. You've also got um, uh, any industries where you are having big migrant labor. Migrant labor live in hostels. Hostels are hotspots. They are difficult. They also require travel. Any industry that requires air travel or any other kind of travel is going to be difficult. Anything in the service industry where people are um, engaging with each other at close hands, I think is going to be difficult. And I think something like tourism, you're talking about travel, you're talking about multiple service industries that go together to create tourism. Um, it's, it's very, very hard. Um, I would also say that even, and this might be surprising for some, I think that the extractive industries are in, in for a very difficult time. Because in most cases, mining requires people who are migrant laborers, and migrant laborers who are working very, very, very close proximity to each other, where working conditions are very bad. You know, but then you could also start having a conversation and say, everyone is also going to have to deal with education. Everyone is also going to have to deal with healthcare, et cetera. Now, the biggest story that I think about all of these areas is, is to ask, why have we got so many areas where we have, I think, very big question marks, right? Really big question marks about how do we get back, right? Like, like, why are we kind of looking at manufacturing sectors and saying, gee, they're really hard because, you know, um, we don't know how people are going to go back into Bangladesh and, and work on a production line uh, sewing clothes. Well, why, why, why are we not sure about that? Well, because they all sit one to two, you know, two feet away from each other. They work all day and they have no um, PPEs, right? And then we have to say, well, the reason why they do that is because we don't have really good, you know, working standards, labor standards in the first place. We just haven't paid attention to that in the previous generation of growth, right? The previous generation of growth, actually, the idea was, let's go for, um, we're we're members of the world economy, and um, we're just going to be a participant. And what does the world economy say? It says we need to uh, have cheap labor. It says we need to have low levels of regulations. Uh, we need to make it really easy for FDI to come in and out of our country. Um, and so basically, we're going to create these arrangements that, you know what, they're really not sustainable and they're actually dangerous for people. And when you have a virus that comes in, that danger just becomes manifest. It always was there, right? It's just now manifest. 
At the same time, you know, in something like healthcare, we're doing much better in poorer countries. We have better rates of vaccination than ever before. Infant mortality rates are better than ever before. Maternal mortality is better than ever it was before. But that isn't because we have more doctors than nurses. If you look at most developing countries, actually the numbers of doctors and nurses are stubbornly low um, and have remained that way or in some cases even declined because if they do produce doctors and nurses, they've gone to wealthier countries. And now what you find is you have this virus and it's basically like, you know what, we, we, we don't have the capacity to deal with it. It's the same in education, right? We've done well in producing schools, but we haven't done well in producing resilient learning. So I think that the next question we have for a lot of countries, it must be very quickly, how do we reopen these things? But we can't reopen them like we did before because they don't work very well. So I think one of the things we need to think about is how do we reimagine what these things look like? How do we reimagine what growth looks like? And that's what I'm talking about, game-changing growth. And maybe, you know, I've thought about how would I define it is in the previous generation, there were not that many countries that really, really, really kind of did well and, and everyone in the country has done well. Very few, actually. Most countries really just kind of went almost with the, the, the rising tide. And, and the global economy grew and healthcare got generally better and education got generally better. And I think that people just said, you know, let's kind of go with the flow. Let's go with what's happening in the world. And, and I don't think that there was enough thought of what do we want the working conditions like for our people to be? What do we want our education system to look like? What do we want our healthcare system to look like? And I'm not, I'm not talking about nationalism here. I'm just talking about building local resilience. And I think that game-changing growth and game-changing healthcare and game-changing education is essentially saying, let's reimagine it so that it's resilient, it's sustainable, and it actually serves our people properly. And it doesn't just give them a kind of a second best alternative. And, 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 and I know that that might sound kind of a, a little controversial to some people because people have said, you know, but the world is looking better than it was in you know, the 1980s. And I'd say, I agree with you, but it looks a whole lot better for, for a very few people that, and, and, and only slightly better or even worse for most others. And when you have a crisis like this, that group for whom you had a slight improvement in the last generation, they are going to fall backwards quite significantly right now. And, and we need to rethink that uh, as we move ahead. It's really interesting. In the piece where you talked about um, game-changing growth, you also spoke about the need to bring morality back into economic policy. And perhaps that's what's needed. People historically talk about this idea that after a crisis, you build back better. But what actually comes to my mind listening to you is build back different. So if now is the time to build back different, how do you actually make that a reality? What needs to happen for countries to be able to actually take advantage of that opportunity? I do believe, you know, I started in, in, in this work in the, in the early 1990s, and I think this has been a, a generation of a lot of ideas infused by kind of neoliberal thought, etc. And I think that after a while, you kind of forget what it is, that, what problems are we trying to solve, and you, you're more just kind of doing what, what, what seems to be the right thing. The first thing I'd say is we, we probably need to sit down and say, what is it that we want? What is it that we want to think about? What do we want to be the imperatives driving our, our thought process? Which are the um, ends and which are the means? Exactly. Which are the ends and which are the means? And then we need to say, uh, you know, are we happy with the trade-offs we see? And, and the idea that you, you, you can have um, a very few people with, with, with gigantic means 
um, and, and, and everyone else doing a little bit better, I think has just become something we've said is okay. You know, as long as everyone's doing a little bit better, you know, we're happy, at the, we're happy with, with significant profit for some. I think we need to think a little bit about kind of just, is that really what we're after? And, you know, my colleague, Danny Roderick, he was like, he, he said, we need to think about the, the language and the words that drive us. And in terms of growth, for a long time, growth now seems to have been driven by profit. And, you know, you think about the doing business indicators. The doing business indicators say what we need to do is we need to decrease regulation. That's literally what they say, right? We need to make it faster to create a business. Well, you know what? That's not kind of what they do in Sweden and Denmark, right? In Sweden and Denmark, they say, no, we need to make, create a process for starting a business that gives that business a really good chance of survival. So what they say is, we don't want you to create 10,000 businesses a year and 9,950 of those fail. We would much rather you create 300 businesses a year, and it's quite hard to create them, but 290 of the 300 succeed, right? And I think it's a different way of thinking who you are and what you want to be. Now, I don't want to say right now which one I think is right or wrong, but we need to have the conversation. And what Danny says is we need to move away from profit of few to productivity by all. We need to think about how do we make our countries more productive. And if, we make our, if, if we're saying we want our, our countries to be productive, what it does is it automatically starts to say, we need to spend more on healthcare. We need to think more about education. We need to think more about kind of where people are working and how they're working. And, and maybe what we're gonna do is we're gonna have smaller profits, but we're gonna have more productive economies and more productive economies are going to be more productive so people will still have the stuff that they need. We will still be moving ahead. And I think that that's the kind of shift that you need, but you need to have a discussion about it. And I think every country probably should. It's not only about just language, it's also about timeframes. And I think, you know, I'm becoming increasingly concerned, you know, right now about um, global warming, right, and about uh, climate change. And, and this gives us an opportunity to say, okay, how do we think about productivity, but productivity over long periods of time. Let's think about what the world looks like, not in 50 years, but over a 50 year period. Let's start thinking like that. I do think that, you know, when you're talking, how do you do this? One of the things I do think is that you need to start convening these conversations differently to how they've been convened before. I think that policymaking needs to be a more open space. Um, I think it needs to be a more deliberative space than it has been. I think you need to have more discourse. And you need to have, have less kind of telling people what will be done and more asking people what their problems are. And I think it's possible. I think it can be done in a lot of places. It's a difficult, painful process because I think many people are going to be defensive and won't want to move in this way. And I do think that you're already seeing some real political struggles around some of these issues. I think that they're worth it. And I think that we need to be courageous to pick up on them because it could be that one way we could look at the crisis of COVID is that what it's really doing is showing us the crisis of the last generation of growth, that everything we thought was going well wasn't, that we, we weren't preparing ourselves very well. We are not very sustainable. We are not very resilient. And many of our citizens have not been served well um, by the systems that we've created. And I think that even opening up that narrative and owning up to that narrative could be a very significant game changer for many countries. I think opening up that space for real change after COVID and creating the sort of wider deliberative conversation that needs 
that's actually going to take a lot of leadership, um, which brings us back to the theme of the first part of our conversation. What advice would you give to a leader or a policymaker at any level and anywhere in the world who wants to help seize this opportunity, who wants to help try and push for this positive change after COVID? So I think, Pete, the first thing that I would say is this is a time for leadership. And leadership, my, my colleagues, Ron Halfwitz, Marty Linsky, they, they speak about leadership as taking risk on behalf of things you care about. And, and you know, I, I, I wrote a, a frustrated, didn't write it in a blog, but a frustrated Facebook page a, a while ago saying, you know, when I was observing things across a number of countries early in this, in this pandemic and saying, why do we seem to expect so little of our leaders? And why do our leaders seem to expect so little of themselves? Why, why, why aren't they the ones who are saying, wow, you know, our hospital infrastructure should be stronger. We should have had these things. Why are they not doing that? And the first thing I want to say is I think it's a time for actually the emergence of a, a different kind of public leadership. And so the message that I would be, the people I would be speaking to first are perhaps not the ones who are in power right now. And, and I know this may not be controversial because, you know, I think people might say this, but I do think this is now a time where people who are public service oriented but are not in power find their way towards it. And, and you know, you and I have worked with uh, government officials all throughout the, the, the world who I think are itching for change. We've seen uh, these people uh, in nonprofit organizations. I think I see them in my classrooms all the time. I think that what you need is the emergence of movements and coalitions of people who think differently um, and, and who align themselves with people who think differently in the same way and who can hold them accountable not to be taken up by the machinery that exists there now. I do think that it is exceptionally difficult to change the political decision-making mechanisms that exist because I think that they've been entrenched around these other narratives. They've been entrenched around short-termism. They've been entrenched around, around profit over productivity. Um, and and I, I don't know how you change that. I, I, I think that for this, what you need is new generations. And you know, I think that you do see this coming in some certain countries. For the people who maybe are those leaders and are in those situations and are kind of saying, I'd like to do things differently. You know, I think yeah, look at Nancy Kane. You know, look at look at look at the examples of people she writes about who I think did one thing in common is I think that they took gigantic risks. I think that they they stood against their supporters and they disappointed them. They stood up and they said no more. We we're doing something different. And I think they did it in in smart ways that meant that they they actually prevailed in doing that. They weren't just trying to be martyrs. They were trying to facilitate change and some of the things that we see that they did was they built coalitions. They, they brought uh, their rivals and those who disagreed with them into conversations and sometimes into their teams and their coalitions. Um, and I think that they, they started looking for the support of people who had not supported them before rather than pandering just to the people who have always supported them. Mm. But it requires taking a significant amount of risk. Um, and that isn't really what a lot of political systems are built around at the moment, I think. Lastly, Matt, how will COVID-19 or how might COVID-19 change or reconfigure the, the field of international development? And how can that field be a 
useful ally and a useful facilitator of that change that you're talking about around the world? Yeah, I think it's going to be very, very interesting. Um, I think that I, I am intrigued about what is going on in developing countries so far. And I, I, I say intrigued because I still don't really know. We don't really have great data. We don't really see what's happening. Um, I, I'm not sure the extent of the crisis in many of these countries. I'm not sure what lessons are going to be coming out of, of these countries. One of the lessons that I do hope comes out, and I think that there's a big chance, is, hey, we can do some of this stuff on our own. Because I think that, you know, the reality is that when countries have got into crises before developing countries, they've often looked towards the multilaterals to finance them out of it, and they've looked towards um, uh, people from the development community in the West to come in and help them. And this time, you know, the planes just haven't been running, and, um, you know, the money just hasn't been available like in the past. So I think that, you know, countries have basically had to work it out themselves. And, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see which countries say, you know, we did okay. We, we, we actually did fine. Um, or we didn't do fine. And it was because, you know, these relationships we depended on turned out not to be sustainable. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see where those two narratives prevail and lead perhaps to countries, developing countries themselves saying, it is our systems that matter more than anything else. And we need now to really build our capabilities. We, we need not only to accept the money for vaccines, but we need to actually build hospitals and we need to build quarters of doctors and nurses. We need to not only accept bailout money and, 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 and rely on that as the way we get out of macroeconomic crises, but we need to actually kind of manage our debt really well and we need to be resilient and we need to have reserves. We need to not only speak about diversifying our economies and, um, and, and building sustainability and resilience through diversification, we need to actually do it. All of these agenda items, we need to kind of take more control of who we are and maybe to even say we can. And I hope that that's a lesson that a lot of countries learn. I know that some countries are definitely learning that. And I think if, if, if developing countries start to see the world in that way, I think it changes development. I think it changes where the narrative of what development is, 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 is even developed. Is it, it won't be happening in places like Harvard or um, Western bilaterals or Washington DC. It'll be happening in developing countries themselves, um, where the identification of what development organizations do and how they do it will also be driven by what is happening on the ground in developing countries rather than in Western capitals. Um, and I think that also the focus on, you know, who does the work needs to change. Um, and because at the end of the day, what this crisis has shown us is at the end of the day, the work needs to be done by the people who live there. It, it, it's, it's your country. Um, it's your people. It's your challenge. And I think that one of the big mistakes that we've made in development in the last generation is empowering this kind of industry of experts who fly in and who fly out and who do the work on behalf of people, but who don't necessarily leave the capabilities behind. And I think that that might change significantly. And if that changes, Peter, changes the nature of development completely. 
because it changes kind of how many people you need to be in a Washington-based organization or a London-based organization. It changes um, uh, how we determine what indicators look like. All of this kind of stuff starts to change. Um, and, and, and I think that there's a good chance that it will move in that direction. The big question really is whether or not the development organizations start to come to the party more than they have. I think that they haven't so far. If they do start to come to it and they do start to show that they are more responsive than they've been, and I, I think you could see some of those relationships really holding. Um, but I think you could see some significant, significant shifts moving development towards developing countries, coming through developing countries, by developing countries. And I think that that would be very important. The, the other thing to say is just, I hope that there is a shift to building capability and building systems and building institutions, a serious shift, rather than just delivering products. Because I think that we've delivered products well in development for a generation now, but those things have not been sustainable in many cases, and they have not led to the kind of um, uh, capabilities where countries can actually grab a hold of things and build on them and make them better in many cases. And, and that's what we need. That's what development should be. Matt, it's been absolutely fascinating to speak to you and a real pleasure to have you as our guest. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Pete. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Policy and Pandemics. A big thank you to our producer, Catherine Valentine, and our editor, Emmy Fairburn. You can get all our podcasts, as well as blogs, papers, and much more at opml.co.uk. And find us on Twitter at OPM Global. Until next time, stay safe.